This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Got to get into some meaty topics here. Politically speaking, Keith Baldry, our Global BC chief political reporter, joins us on the line. Hi, Keith. Hey, Judy. Uh, let's hit this breaking story about the Supreme Court of Canada dismissing yep. this attempt by uh, BC to assert authority over what can flow through the Trans Mountain Pipeline from Alberta. Yeah, the Supreme Court of Canada just ruled, uh, dismissed BC government's attempt to uh, have a law that would allow the government to determine what flows through that pipeline. Not unexpected at all. Uh, this was, uh, I think, a, basically a Hail Mary uh, pass by the BC NDP. Uh, the only tool they had left in their toolbox to block the pipeline was this constitutional reference case. But the Supreme Court of Canada clearly um, in no mood to make new law here, which would make new constitutional law, allowing B.C. to regulate something that flows through a pipeline from another province. Uh, and it is also regulated by the federal government. So no surprise, but it's a big blow to anti-pipeline uh, uh, people and a big boost to pro-pipeline proponents because this removes a big obstacle. Well, I'm not sure how big an obstacle it was because very few people gave much of a chance for this court case to actually succeed in court. So today, the Supreme Court of Canada basically confirming what a lot of people anticipated it, and that's another green light for the pipeline to proceed. And anti-pipeline proponents were hoping that this would have been something that maybe surprised all the pundits who said, no, no, because at the end of the day, the, the federal government owns a pipeline. Exactly. I think uh, the best case, the best chance to to block the pipeline, I think, would be in court with a First Nations uh, argument, and that has not succeeded uh, up until now either. But this this uh, attempt by the BC government to carve out new law uh, mm. was really not looked upon with any great uh, favor in terms of it actually being able to succeed in court. And then today's ruling just confirms what I think a lot of people thought that where this was headed. Keeping a bunch of very busy people busy with something that is rather a nothing burger, for lack yeah, of a better a term. a lot of money was spent on this yeah. in the province, but yeah. uh, not much to show for it at the end of the day. Uh, provincial politics still. Uh, let's stay with this. Andrew Weaver's announcement that he's leaving mm-hmm. the Green Party uh, caucus in, and um, moving it... Uh, into being an independent. Does that surprise you? Not really. Uh, a couple things going on. It's uh, Andrew Weaver, it's been clear for some time that there's been seemingly sort of a, a gulf that's developed between him and the other two Green Party caucus members, Adam Wilson and Sonia Furstenau. Some of the co- comments Andrew uh, Weaver's been making, both publicly and privately, certainly gives the impression that uh, there's a, there's a di- distance now between the two. Weaver is very much more, a, um, I think, a pragmatist and likes partnering with the NDP and getting things done. I think he views, first of all, and Olson more of the activist wing of the party. And, and Weaver's been clear for some time. He's not impressed with the Green Party itself. He, he regards them as sort of controlled and run by what he considers to be some naivety, uh, naive people when it comes to politics and not realizing the need for pragmatism that you have to park sometimes your activism at the door if you want to get things done. So he's been increasingly frustrated, I think, in his role. Uh, And when he announced that he was going to step down as leader, that was a signal that uh, I think that more was to come. The other thing is that there's a member of his family who's fighting a very, very serious major illness. That's going to take up his time now. He's going to spend most, if not all, his time tending to that issue and not having to worry about being in the legislature all the time, being at committee meetings, uh, you know, being, being 
performing duties that you have to perform as a member of a caucus. So now as an independent member, he can step that, step aside and, and come in. He'll come in for the, the confidence vote uh, that will be held in the spring that will keep the NDP uh, going, the government going. So he's not withdrawing his support from the government. He's simply sitting as an independent member. He's still keeping his Green Party membership. He hasn't quit the party. Okay. Uh, but I think he'll quit the party once uh, his term ends as an MLA. He wants to go back to teaching at the University of Victoria. So it doesn't really change the numbers in the legislature that much, but it does speak, I think, about potentially the future of the Green Party. Because without Andrew Weaver, I think uh, he brought a, a freshness to the legislature we hadn't seen for some time. And, and the Green Party got into the, the, the House on the strength of riding Andrew Weaver's back, and he's not going to be there for them anymore. And I think that's a big blow to that party. I would agree with you, and I'm... Uh Surprised, and, and first and foremost, I should say, that we are all, on behalf of CKNW, certainly sending our best to Andrew Weaver's family, and family first, of course. I'm mm-hmm. sorry to hear that there's um, such a health crisis uh, happening, and certainly he should uh, focus on that. It is surprising from a political sort of viewpoint as I'm watching it and as a British Columbian, as a taxpayer, I look at it and think, yeah, you know, he did, as a pragmatist, bring some, I don't know, a sense of... Uh, validity, I guess, as the professor who came in to lead the BC Greens. Um, it, yep. It's interesting for, from my perspective. I, I'm a little bit sad. I don't even know how else to put it. Well, yeah, I know he's, uh, he's sort of an energy to the legislature. Um, he's the one who basically is the, sort of the guarantor, the guarantor of the NDP being in power. I mean, he yeah. chose John Horgan over Christy Clark, and that's the reason the NDP is in power now. And I think Weaver continues to have a strong relationship with Horgan. And it'll be interesting going forward. Uh, he's not running again. I don't think that seat can be considered safe territory for the Green Party at all. Oak Bay is traditionally a, a strong liberal uh, seat and has been for deca- uh, decades, although well, the NDP did have it uh, for a few years in the 1990s. But mm-hmm. when he leaves, it's, it's going to be a major departure of a major personality in the B.C. legislature. I mean, he's a, he's a dominant guy. I mean, uh, he, he can be full of bluster at times and, and uh, sometimes inconsistent, but he certainly brings an attitude and a personality to the legislature that I think a lot of people have, have welcomed over the years. So do these decisions rattle John Horgan in the least? Not really, no, because uh, uh, Weaver remains very much supportive of John Horgan. Uh, he's not going to withdraw his support. Right. Uh, he's going to be there for the confidence vote, is what he's told me. Uh, he will now. Um, the numbers are such that uh, even without uh, Weaver in the House on a daily management basis, it shouldn't make much difference to the NDP in terms of passing legislation. They have enough of a, a an elbow room uh, to ensure that just was one member of that Green NDP alliance is absent doesn't mean that legislation should fall short. But um, having said that, when the numbers are so tight, everybody is welcome in their chairs when, the, when, a, when votes occur. But Weaver will ensure that uh, nothing terrible happens to the NDP government in terms of losing uh, passage of a bill in, in legislation. But he's going to be spending a lot of time, most of his time, dealing with a, a family situation, and mm-hmm. uh, he rightly thinks that's a priority for him right now. Um, I want to touch on the Sam Cooper uh, investigative uh, piece that uh, came out yesterday, uh, definitely putting the money laundering file back in the spotlight. Has that had any fallout at the legislature? I know Linda Steele has Andrew Wilkinson in with her at two o five in studio uh, to talk. But have you? Has there been any buzz about that? Not yet, because 
uh, the reality is there's nobody at the legislature. Right. Right? So the only people there are reporters. A right. uh, few ministers are coming back from holidays, but uh, people are still in, in the legislature, kind of still on holiday mode. The legislature resumes sitting uh, second week of February. Having said that, this is not good news to the B.C. Liberals. This no. is another reminder of how they mishandled this file for years. This, is, this dates back to 2009. Uh, before Wilkinson even got into to, uh, B.C. politics. So he's got some clean hands here. But, you know, Rich Coleman was the guy in charge there. He's refusing to have interviews. Uh, and he hung it, up on our producer, Alan yeah, so Re- he, Regan. Yeah, hung up on Alan. I, yeah. I mean, it's just uh, somewhat um, r- ridiculous that he would do that. But yeah. it would be interesting when the House comes back whether this issue resurfaces in the House, it's not the easiest thing to do that because it's the Liberals who ask questions, not the Democrats. But uh, once that inquiry starts, so the public inquiry starts engaging in hearings uh, full speed, that's when it's going to be top of the agenda again. But uh, this is just another another reminder of the BC Liberals that they've got some skeletons in their closet that are not easily removed. And the public is not going to rest until there are some significant answers and consequences to well, be yeah, paid and, on the and file. Accountability. People yeah. are looking for some accountability here, and so far we've seen that. Haven't seen the phone boards light up here like that earlier today when I said, are you frustrated on this file? Boom, it was full. So yeah. taking the temperature. Interesting, Jody. It's one of the one of the stories that's emerged the last uh, few months of the money laundering file was another one uh, one of my colleagues did pointing out that um, there has not really been a successful prosecution of money laundering uh, forever. Ever. It's a very hard uh, criminal count to to prosecute successfully. And even with the public inquiry, I think we're still going to be left frustrated at the end of the day that some of these activities may continue, albeit in perhaps less volume. But the, the bad guys, the criminals here, may be, continue to be notoriously elusive when it comes to holding them to account. And you've said from the very beginning, this is a long, drawn-out process where everybody lawyers up. It costs yeah. a great deal of money with very little consequence at the end to the well, end victim. Well, it, it, yeah, I mean, it, hopefully the inquiry sh- sheds a light on what's going on. But, you know, Sam Cooper's been sh- shedding a pretty good light on yeah, that right? as yeah. well. But whether the inquiry can actually get to the point of... Pro- turning up evidence that leads to a criminal prosecution. That's a, that's a whole different story, and that's uh, I'm not sure we're going to get that far. And Keith, I want to talk to you about federal politics here, and the news of high-profile conservative Peter McKay throwing his hat in, maybe to replace Andrew Scheer. Yeah, not unexpected, uh, but certainly I think a federal moment for the conservatives as they sort of try to rebuild their, themselves after that election loss. So McKay's a veteran. He's had numerous uh, cabinet portfolios under the, Steve, in the Stephen Harper government. He was one of the guys who negotiated with the Harper-Canadian alliance to create the, the current modern version of the Conservative Party. Uh, so he brings a lot of experience to the table. He's um, uh, fairly well-known in, in political circles. He's also what's known as a red Tory. And by that, that's a reference to uh, conservatives who regard themselves as socially liberal on issues such as same-sex marriage, uh, abortion, uh, a number of other things that are not social conservatives, yet they are fiscally conservative. They want a balanced budget and keep a close eye on tax dollars. That's long been a tradition of uh, a traditional base in the Conservative Party that goes back decades. Uh, but now it's going to be interesting whether or not McKay can win a contest which does have a significant amount of social conservatives. Uh, and Andrew Scheer was one of them, and he emerged victorious in the last uh, leadership contest on the strength of some of that social conservatism. So it'll be interesting whether McKay can pull off a leadership win. I think he has the best chance of bringing the party back 
closer to the center right rather than the social conservative right, and that would give, I think, improve the conservatives' chances of winning seats again in the urban and suburban areas of Canada, where they really did not fare well in the last election. And if you don't do well in the in the urban and suburban areas, and in Quebec and and around Toronto, you're just not going to win elections in this country. And McKay, right now, I think, has the best chance of of many uh, to lead the party to that position. But he's he's got his work cut out for him. Well, his work cut out for him to get that leadership position, being that red Tory, right? That's what you're saying there, is that the people that are going to put him in a position to be the leader might want him to take a harder stance on those topics that really, that have Justin Trudeau um, breathing a sigh of relief, I guess, when when Ronna Ambrose was sort of rumored to maybe be taking this on, people were like, ooh, that's a formidable yeah. opponent, with her saying, no, I, I just don't want to do it. And having a McKay step in here, it kind of changes it, because people predicting that Ronna Ambrose would have given Justin Trudeau a greater fight. Oh, certainly she would have been an, a very interesting person to put up against Justin Trudeau. Uh, McKay, I think, is more, you sort of know what you're getting here. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, he's a veteran. Uh, he's been around a long time. Is he a blast from the past? Yes, but he's only 54. He's still, you know, he he was actually voted something like the sexiest man on Parliament Hill six years <laughs> in a row by the Hill Times. So he does, he carries that reputation, which is sort of, Almost Trudeau-like in terms mm. of that that uh, that side of the equation. So, uh, what, what the issue I'm going to be interested in to see what if McKay brings into the debate is his position on climate change. If he suddenly articulates a more aggressive. Uh, policy fighting climate change than Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives did in the past that might eat into some of Trudeau's support and, hmm. and the NDP support and on that on that issue uh, it's a risky move by him to do that because again we're talking about party members who are going to make the decision to elect him and if it's a bunch of uh, anti climate change uh, fighters and social conservatives he's not not going to be able to emerge victorious but uh, if if not uh, that's an issue that. Um, sort of changes the subject because the issue of whether you march in a pride parade if mckay wins that's gone i mean he's he has no problems with 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 those types of issues so the issues that dogged andrew Shear will not dog peter mckay should he prove victorious but he may try to carve out some new turf for himself which should be very interesting given the fact that there are a lot of people who voted for Justin Trudeau simply because they couldn't vote against same-sex yep. marriage and abortion rights or, or women's rights, for that matter. Uh, it's, it's fascinating how it shifts the conversation. And Peter McKay, when I interviewed him on Charles Adler tonight a number of months ago, uh, he mentioned about Jody Wilson-Raybould. I asked him point blank, would you have handled that differently? And he said, I absolutely would have, and then went on to be quite transparent in what he would have done. I have to find that clip and... Well, you know, he, he was Attorney General and Justice yeah. Minister for a yeah. brief time in the Harper government. Um, no, and he said, uh, one thing, again, what he brings to the table that others don't is that he's been in the cabinet for a number mm-hmm. of years. He was the leader of the party, the, the old party, uh, for a short period of time. So he brings a, a depth of experience that uh, others lack. But again, I think the hill he's got to get over is the party membership from where it's at on some of these issues. Right, and, to get uh, to that leadership point. Uh, you know what, Keith? Uh, great to chat with you, as always. Thanks for this. Anytime. Take care.